Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. And welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm Peter Hart, and today I have as a special surprise Gary Beals. No, Gary Bain. Oh, yeah, Gary Bain. Gary Beals is somebody else, <laughs> according to the WFA. Yeah, they love you. Now, uh, so what, what are we doing this week? This week, what, 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 what? Well, uh, we're uh, we're doing the 16th DLI. It's the, I think, third episode in the series. We're, we're really loving it. Big response from you punters. We love you all. Thank you for the encouragement. Punters. Punters. Yeah, that's the that's what people in the know say in the 1970s. All right. Uh, so today, it's the 16th DLI, and it's a, it's a very, very exciting and terrible episode. All of our Podcasts are terrible. And it's called, Gary? The Battle of Sedgenane. Battle of Sedgenane, yeah. Now, where were we? Well, the, the, where they'd been, they'd been, they'd been on a ridge facing German positions of Green Hill and Baldy. Uh, and the, uh, what, the, the, they'd been there. There'd been not a lot happening. Odd, odd casualties, of course. There's always casualties amongst the infantry at war. And they'd been there s- since January. And then on the 23rd of February, they were pulled back, uh, with the whole of the 139 Brigade, which was their, uh, brigade, to become the 9th Corps Reserve. And where did the 16th DLI go, seeing as you've been practicing how to say the name? Well, they were concentrated at Sedgenane. Uh, <laughs> now, just, just to, Revisit the names of those hills just for a minute. Green Hill and Baldy. Typical British infantry. They're calling it what they say. So I'm assuming one was a green hill and I'm assuming one had nothing on it. Yeah. And what about Bear Arse Hill? Well, we'll come to that, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, they've not been there long when a few days later, the storm broke. <gasps> That was a storm. Now, both sides were planning to attack, but the Axis forces struck first. They always do that. They'd, well, and counterattack. Yeah, they do it all. Now, they'd been reorganised when von Arnim's 5th Panzer Army was combined with Rommel's Panzer Army Africa to form a single army group Africa under Rommel's command. Oh, God, it's all complicated. Well, on 14th of February 1943, the Germans launch a concerted attack on the Kasserine Pass. Uh, well, what, what happens there? I mean, I think there's a lot of nonsense talked about this as well. For uh, uh, well, What happens? 
Well, I'll just add a bit more nonsense. This is where they caused mayhem amongst the relatively inexperienced and initially outnumbered American defenders. Yeah, the, the Germans break through the mountain pass. They, they smash their way forward about 40 miles or more. And their intention is to split the U.S. Um, the U.S. Uh, Second Corps from the rest of First Army, which was to the north. And they also wanted to cut its main supply road ro- ro- line, which is, uh, the, you, we, we all know this, it's the Tabata Road, isn't it, Gary? It is. Now, it took a while to sort themselves out, but eventually the Allied resistance firmed up and Rommel withdrew from the Kasserine Pass to turn his attention to Montgomery's imminent offensive on the Mareth line. Mareth. 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 They say potato and I say potato. You say tomato and I say tomato. Tomato, tomato, potato, potato. How long are you keeping this up? Let's call the whole thing off. Now, if we've got anyone listening still, on the 26th of February 1943, the relative peace and calm to the north of the First Army Front was broken when the Germans launched two more offensives. Now, these aren't so much offences. What would you call them, really, if you thought about it a bit longer? Well, spoiling attacks, I suppose. They were aimed at forcing a temporary Allied withdrawal, or at the very least, delaying any planned advance towards Tunis. So this was an embuggerance. Yes, that's another way of putting it. Now, I'm surprised you're not saying this. Operation Oxenkopf. Can I translate that for you? Yes, please that's do. That's the o- ox head. You, you nearly struggled to translate ox. Now, that was a, a, a three-pronged attack. Can you describe the three pongs for me, young man? Well, the northern group were to advance to capture Beja, the second to envelop the British at Majez El Bab, and the third to carry out a pincer attack in the Bu Aruda Valley before an advance on El Arusa. Now, there was also a subsidiary operation. What was that called? Uh, that was Operation Ausladung. Now, looking, means- looking at you, I've got a big hint of what this might be. Operation Bulge. Now, that proved to be a more direct threat to the 16th Ah! The Germans planned to use an improvised division, which was commanded by Colonel von Mantufel, to outflank the British troops in their strong ridge positions facing Green Hill and Baldy Hill by attacking along the coastal strip to the north, which was only weakly held by the Corps France now, the Germans are trying to cut their communications, uh, basically from Jeffna to Jebel Aboyed, and to cover the northern flank of Operation uh, Ox... Oh. Oxenkopf. Oh, that's it. I may have slipped there. Uh, Mantofel's troops, they're a motorised infantry of who, Gary? The Luftwaffe Fallschirmjäger Barentin Regiment. And also the ten- Italian 10th Bersaglieri Regiment. All right. Uh, now, uh, the surprise attack, uh, what does it happen to it? It smashes through the French, free French forces and drove in and they sort of move move along the coast strip and then head down towards Sejanine from the north, uh, which meant, what does this mean in essence? Well, it meant that the Axis forces were now behind the British positions and fast approaching the 16th DLI in their reserve positions. Yes, yeah, so the British troops that were on uh, facing Greenhill and Baldy now have a threat coming from the north behind them. That's exactly what you were just saying. Now, uh, what's the first hit that the, the British know about? Well, the 16th DLI know about as well. Let's hear from Private Tom Turnbull of B Company 16th DLI. The first thing we knew, the French troops came streaming past us saying, Allemand, Allemand. Everyone got dressed, stand to. Then we went into action. 
The Germans had broken through the French on the flank and we were sent in to stop them because they'd have come round behind the division. Now, um, uh, this is this is just dreadful for the for the sixteenth. Everybody, everybody's caught on the hop. And who who do you think was most surprised? Well, poor Colonel Richard Ware, who, oblivious to the imminent threat, was engaged in a recce, accompanied by all his company commanders, all of his company commanders, <laughs> in preparation for the battalion's planned move to to Bursuk. Now that leaves the battalion of the commander Major David Bannerman and. The company second in commands. So each company second in command. Uh, that that's not exactly ideal, would you say, Gary? How would you describe that? Well, I think that's the to, to say the least. That the situation's very confused, with no clarity as to either how many Germans were attacking or indeed their current location. Now, as a first response, the battalion moves out of their tented camp, uh, which is uh, in the Corkwoods at uh, Sejanane, and they, they take up their positions around the MT lines. Uh, that night, Bannerman, that's... The, David Bradman, the, the second in command, reports to brigade headquarters to get orders. Uh, and and he, he, when he gets back, what, what, what orders does he bring? Well, he brought news that the 16th DLI, accompanied by two troops of number one commando, were to launch a counterattack with an intended zero hour of 05.30 on the 27th of February. Now, they're going to advance north to take possible German positions on the Bajor des Monopoles hill. Uh, supported by the guns of the 70th Field and 5th Medium Regiment's Royal Artillery. And they're going to advance along a road that's called the Gap Sherat Road into the Sejanane Valley. That's a, a river. Uh, a, uh, it's not the town, it's the river of Sejanane from which the town probably gets its name, or vice versa. Now, A Company would be leading. Then the forward battalion headquarters, followed by B and D companies, with C Company acting as the reserve. Now, when they get to the bridge over the river, A Company would continue pushing up the valley. B Company would move along to the high ground to the left, accompanied by the two troops of number one commander, while D Company would move to the high ground on the right of the valley. Now, before they go, what do you think they got? It's a bit, uh, for, to me, this is almost a surprise, but. What is it? Yeah, the, the men are given a rum ration, which, as you rightly say, is, it's comparatively rare in the Second World War. And it was issued by one of our favourites already, uh, Jimmy James. So this is Company Quartermaster Sergeant Jimmy James of D Company. The rum came round in gallant jars from the quartermaster. I was told that at breakfast. They would come back with mugs in groups of eight and they'd have a pint of rum between eight men. I supervised the issue of breakfast. I said, rum ration, get yourself in, eights. And I dished out the rum ration. I filled the mugs right up to the brim with rum. They went away and they sipped it. I said, there's no good coming back for more. George Broadhead said, Jimmy, I'll confide in you. I don't, I don't feel much like going into battle. Give me an extra drop of rum. I said, George, you don't drink, do you? <laughs> <laughs> There's your ration. He took hold of the jar and he went, glug, glug, glug. I took the bottle. He must have had a good half pint of rum. <laughs> I saw them go into battle. Mm, and remember that name, George Broadhead. Okay, so what happens next? Well, delays meant that they only moved forwards at Delays in the British Army. <laughs> and A Company crossed the bridge at 0700. As they did so, an intensive rifle and machine gun fire poured down from uh, Ben Iren, a small hill on the left, from the slopes of Jebel Sincera and Jebel Raktul. They're on the right. Uh, and from directly ahead as well. So from bloody everywhere except behind them. 
Now, no one seemed able to determine the strength of the Germans, but the fire was damaging. Now, A Company couldn't make any real progress up the valley, and B Company, who were coming up behind, also suffered casualties. And this is, again, Private Tom Turnbull of B Company. I'll never forget it. We were pinned down, and the corporal said to one of the lads, hand the brain gun up and see where they're firing from. And as he got up to get behind the brain gun, a sniper put one through his wrist. Another lad at the other side said, give the brain gun to me. And the sniper did exactly the same to him, put one through his wrist. They were more or less on a hill in front of us, but they didn't show their positions. You could just see the smoke in that. Then we got orders. Drop back, fall back. Company Sergeant Major Hetherington was organising the way out. We were crawling, two or three of us along the ground. I got a burst alongside of me, right down the full length of my body, I could feel it. I didn't stop there very long. I was off. Two of us two of us were running across an open space to jump into a trench. The lad in front of me, he stopped one in the arm that crippled him. We got him into this slit trench. Now, the, the, the Germans are obviously not back where they were meant to be at uh, Biordi des Monopolis. Can't say that, but never mind. And they're in all these hills, just two miles north of the Sejanin. Now, on the right, D Company, they managed to get up onto the Jebel uh, Sincera. Uh, but there was serious, serious resistance. And this is what Sergeant Russell King, D Company, said. We had to get the men spread out, carrying the rifles at the high port, four to five yards between the men. We went up this bloody hill. Never saw anything. Blokes were walking up saying, Bloody hell, don't bugger here, a waste of time. We dashed all this way back. <laughs> We've dashed all this way back. Yeah, I was trying to keep a bit of discipline. Come on, get yourself on. We got over this crest, and it was a false crest. There was another plateau, gullies and waddies, leading up to the peak. We got really bloody hammered. Machine guns, mortars, getting strapped. We were sitting ducks. Everybody went to ground and started crawling up these waddies. One of the first lads I saw fall was Broadhead, the sergeant major. We were really in trouble down in these waddies. Very low cactus. If you put your head above the cactus, that was it. Absolutely withering fire coming across. The snipers were taking pot shots. We were stuck in these waddies. We'd been there quite a while. Nobody seemed to know what the hell was going on. There seemed to be no overall pattern. What the hell were we supposed to do next? We laid there. You couldn't move anyway for the fire. I was with the platoon headquarters. Just in front of us was one of our company platoons. I think it must have been 16 platoon. The Germans rounded them all up about 20 yards in front of where we were. You couldn't do anything. If you stuck stuck your head up, it was shot off. We really got hammered. When things calmed down a bit, one of the lieutenants shouted, Lay low where you are till it's dark. I think it was Lieutenant Duffy. We laid in the cactus until it was dark, then we went back down the hill. Like the Duke of York's men, march up the bloody hill and march back down again. The initial camp when we got back was 12 of our company. Then overnight they started straggling back in, but not a lot came back. Wow. Now on the left, C Company started to move forward, but then it was decided to pull both B and C Companies back to the bridge. It was difficult for Major Bannerman to exert any real control over events, and at around 12 o'clock, Colonel Richard Ware arrived 
to find utter confusion abounded. Well, he's also buggered, isn't he? It, 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 it's, uh, I, he's trying to assess the situation, but nobody knows what's happening, do they? And he, he organises a, a renewed attack, uh, for, uh, timed at 1400. Uh, so uh, what happens this time? Well, this time, C Company and the 1st Commando would attack on the left flank towards Jebel Gerber and Jebel Galb Sauer. Meanwhile, a strong fighting patrol organised from headquarters company personnel were sent further out to the left flank to move up Mosque Spur and then move to the east. Now, in the centre, B Company had the thankless task of pushing straight up the valley, while D Company was still marooned on the Jebel Sincera and Jebel Raktul. Now, as B Company moved forward, uh, they came under heavy fire. They were awful fire from machine guns and mortars. They were enfiladed from both sides. Now, they'd go, only gone a couple of hundred yards when it became obvious it was hopeless. And this is Lance Corporal Thomas Atkinson of B Company. He was a stretcher bearer, I think, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, and this is what he says. I thought, well, I don't know. This is suicide, this is. There didn't seem to be any sense in it. I wish to hell we knew what we were doing because uh, I didn't. The enemy was on both sides of us and also in front of us. We looked to be marching into the valley of death to me. You forget about home and ordinary life. You completely forget it. You're in a different world, somehow or other. If you started thinking about life back home, you would do nothing. Well, we're in this, so we do... So do the best you can. That's talking to himself, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, there was artillery and mortars, all mortars coming from both sides. We lost a hell of a lot. There was a lot of dead. It seemed to me that the artillery support was, was more after the first hour or so than it was beforehand. That's their own artillery. At that time, we could have done with some smoke to get out. That's why there were so many taken prisoner. They were outflanked. As I lay down that morning, I could hear his afternoon, really, isn't it? But yeah, there's that. There's inconsistencies in a lot of these accounts. I could hear the Jerry's talking. I must have been more than about 30 yards from the German dugouts. You just lay there. You didn't move. There was artillery and mortar shells going over. Caught in the open, lying flat on your stomach, hoping for a little bit of cover, some smoke to get you back to your lines. There was a hell of a lot of artillery coming over, and the bulk of it was ours, dropping amongst us. You could hear the stuff falling round you. We lay pretending to be dead, wishing it would turn dark so I could get the hell out of it. Wow. Now, most of the men would be pinned down in that open ground until the onset of night allowed them to trickle back. And it was during this failed advance that Tom Turnbull's luck ran out. And this, once more, is Private Tom Turnbull of B Company. That was when I got hit. We heard the mortar shells coming, what we called the moaning minis, a six-barrelled electric mortar. The shells used to explode in a circle. Bloody terrible. We dove down. I was wounded and lifted off the ground by the blast and shrapnel in my back, just below my left shoulder blade. It felt as if somebody had had a hell of a running kick at me. I looked up at two of the lads, bent over, and I said, I'll catch up. I was in pain then. I loosened my blouse and I looked down, and all my vest, my shirt and everything was all blood. I must have passed out. Then I knew no more till I saw two pair of legs coming towards me. It might sound boastful, but automatically I was grabbing for my rifle. It was a mortar sergeant and a little Frenchman. They pulled me up, took me, took us behind a hillock, cut my blouse and put a dressing on. Major Hillis, the company commander, he walked towards me where I was kneeling. He looked at me and he had tears in his eyes. He says, drop further back, Turnbull. How many have I got left of the company? 
Yeah, and the answer is not many uh, by this time. Turnbull is evacuated as walking wounded uh, to a dressing station in, a, in the railway tunnel uh, back at Sedgenane. And uh, he would uh, rejoin the, D- the 16th DLI in July 1943. Now, stretcher bearer, I'm going to take the centre stage here, stretcher bearer Thomas Atkinson, who was also taken prisoner. He was with B Company, you'll remember, Gary. He said this, it was getting dusk. The Germans suddenly appeared beside us. They knew we were there. We were surrounded by them. There were maybe half a dozen heavily armoured, armed, not armoured, armed Germans who just took us 20 to 30 yards into this round hole, not slit trenches. We had a wounded chap with us, nasty. His eye, his thigh had been hit. All we could do was put a field dressing on him. He was moaning. He was in pain, but we couldn't do much about it. We carried him with us. They turned out to be rather friendly in a way after they pinched our cigarettes. Next morning, we started moving back to their medical inspection tent. We got the job that morning of bringing in casualties, Germans as well as ours. They they evacuated them in priority. The more serious ones, it didn't matter whether they were English or German. That's how it should be, how it should be. And on the left, the Durhams had made no real progress, but they managed to capture and retain Ben Iren, which was named Joby's Bump after their company commander, Captain George Joby. Did he have a particularly noticeable bump? Possibly. And some of the lower heights on the left. Now, at this stage, we'll take a short break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. That night... The tattered remnants of B Company and the headquarters company were ensconced in a very small Arab village just north of Sejanine, 
Now, C Company, they're actually still a bit further forward because they're still holding Joby's bump. Uh, I do like that. While uh, A and D companies were uh, amalgamated, there's not much <laughs> awful lot left. So, you know, and they're pulled back into the Sedgenane Corkwoods where they'd started from. Uh, what happens next day? Well, I can guess. Well, it was spent reorganising as the battalion had been badly knocked about. Colonel Ware reported back to 139 Brigade only to find he was ordered to begin the preparations for a major counterattack at 0500 on the 3rd of March. Um, how's this going to go, do you think? Mm, well, this is Private Sidney Schutt, also of B Company. We were all lined up and Colonel Ware was up and down the line talking. We were going in tomorrow. He says, you'll have the artillery behind you. Nothing really to worry about. Lobbing in front of you. Advance, follow the shells. Anybody that feels like falling out, now is the time if you can't take it. Well, there's nobody going to fall out. Probably we'd all like to fall out at the time. It was only natural because we knew what we were in for. Yeah, I think that's a classic army thing, isn't it? They'd all like to uh, not yeah, but do nobody it. nobody will. Nobody will because they were there. That's the whole point of army discipline, of army training. The common enemy. Who is the common enemy in a training squadron? You are. <laughs> not me, the drill sergeant, Gary. <laughs> now on the left C Company would push forward from Joby's bump to take DJ or J Gwerba and B Company were to move up Mosque Spur to attack point two three one on Jebel Galb Sauer now what were D Company doing? they were they- going to follow up behind B Company uh, moving along Mosque Spur and then they'd push through to attack Mraf Spur which is clearly behind uh, the other one. I think we really will need a map if we can find one. Uh, yes, I think I can find one. Now, the 6th Lincolnshires, they would move to hold the start lines as a firm base once the 16th DLI had attacked. Now, would you, how, how would you describe this, uh, this, uh, this mission? Um, dangerous, in a word. The, the Germans at this point are, are present in considerable strength and, uh, and, well, can you imagine that night, Gary? No, I can't, actually. They know what's going to happen next morning. Yeah, and they're they're readying themselves for those challenges, aren't they? Now, Sidney Schutt was in the platoon commanded by Lieutenant Dorian, and he says this, that's B Company, and he says this. We got a bit of a meal. There was a touch of rum, very little mind. We set out, crossed that river in the dark and lined up. I was with the officer and the sergeant major. The watches were synchronised. Dorian says... Now we'll hear the first shot from the artillery. That's the sign to move forward. There we were, standing static, silent, not a word, just waiting for that. Watching the watches. Off goes the gun. One shot. Dorian. Right, that's the signal. Advance steady. And we marched forward. The shells were dropping. It was muddy. It was rough. Now, the head of them, there's a creeping barrage, old First World War tra- uh, tactic, uh, a line of shells moving ahead of them. And this is what Private Tom Tunney, uh, who's in C Company, said. This barrage started, the artillery and our own mar- mortars. They started about 40 or 50 yards in front of us, and it went up the hill, all the way up. Jerry, he was on the top. He just had to bloody run back about 50 to 100 yards. Then, when the buggers stopped... That's the artillery meets. He just ran back again to where he was. We followed it up, and a sergeant, he came crawling over to me. He says, there's a bloody machine gun over there. Can you see it, Tony? I says, aye. It's not Scottish. Oh, Durham, yeah. He was firing up our arses. 
we were going up the hill and he was down here and he was firing crossways upwards. The sergeant says, have a go at him. And I had a go with the Bren. I got him. That's when my mate got hit, Foster. He was lying alongside us. He says, ag, I've been hit. He got up and he's away down the bank. Now, this is what I love about oral history of these, these projects because... Well, funnily enough, who are we going to hear from next? Well, Private George Forster of C Company. And he says this. I got hit by a machine gun or whatever it was from the right on the hill. It hit me in the stomach and came out the side through my ribs on the left hand side. I just felt a searing pain and I went down on my knees. That was the end of me. I can't remember any more. I came to and I looked and everybody had gone. I had boots on and the blood was oozing out through the eyelets of my boots. I thought, oh, then somebody fired a mortar bomb and it dropped 50 yards away. And I thought, if that's come from that way, I'll go this way. I could just about stand. I turned round and staggered away. There was nobody about, not a soul. Now, just do what I'm doing, people at home. Just uh, find, uh, find your stomach, in your case, easy. And, uh, and then uh, look, think of that. That bullet goes into his stomach and comes out of his ribs on the left-hand side. That's not a, that's not a small... That's, that's a bad wound. Mm. Now, he goes back down towards Joby's bump and he sets off towards the Sejanine Road. And uh, Private George Foster goes on to say, I met another man from D Company. He was a bit shell-shocked, what you called bomb-happy. He didn't know where he was or what he was doing. He helped me across the river onto the other side and the RAMC blokes were coming up then and they picked me up and put me on a stretcher on a donkey. Oh, that would be quite painful with a stomach wound. Hmm. Anyway, he goes on. Took me back to Sejanane, to a tunnel. They told me later we lost nearly all our men. I hadn't a clue, not till afterwards. Quite a bit of pain. There were big bright lights. I kept saying, can I have a drink? And they wouldn't give me a drink with stomach wounds. They kept putting cotton wool on my mouth to moisten my lips. The next thing I knew, they were wheeling me in and there were loads and loads of stretchers and men lying. I had operation. I had an operation in the tunnel. They sewed me up. I was bleeding in my stomach and they had to operate or it was curtains. I came to when they, were lift, uh, when they lifted me into an ambulance to take me 15 to 20 miles further back. The Germans were getting closer to the field ambulance. That's the um, field ambulance station in the tunnel. Uh, again, I just want you to picture that wound and being in a bloody... They're not good roads in, no, in that area. No, being on a, on a donkey. Oh, no, Jesus. that's even worse. But the field ambulance wouldn't have been good, would they? Now, meanwhile, Tom Tunney oh, his mate. and the remains of C Company were still trying to fight his way up onto Gerber. So this is right back to where we just were. Yeah, in, in and this is Private Tom Tunney of C Company. I had a Lance Corporal from Bishop Auckland. That's where my family are from. Uh, he took over as my number two. And I says, we better get up there and get, get over the top. Instead of coming back, as we should have done, we went up towards them. I thought our lot were in front, that they'd gone over the top. But they'd all been bloody knocked out. They were knocked out and took prisoner. And there was any amount killed and wounded. I gave him the brain. I says, I'm sick to bloody death of pulling this bloody thing about. Here, have a go at this. We were going up through the grass, crawling away up, crawling away. And I heard these voices. You could hear them getting nearer and nearer. I said, here, yeah, they're coming. There's someone coming. If they pop their heads up uh, over there, have a go. 
I had his rifle. I had I had this rifle, I think that. And this head comes over the top. I pulled the trigger and nothing happened. If the if that rifle had been cocked, I'd have gotten him. But but there was about six or seven of them, and we would have had it. <laughs> they wouldn't have taken this bloody prisoner if we'd knocked one of their mates out. We'd have got killed there and then in the heat of the moment. They said, that's just amazingly lucky then, isn't it? Because uh, he tried to fire, it just didn't work. They said, stand up. Only not in a, <laughs> in a German accent. Well, we had to get up. One of the Germans picked up the Bren gun. He burned his hand on the hot barrel, chucking it down the hillside. He actually said, for you, Tommy, the war is over. He actually said it. I think that's, the, we had this for the South Nazis. who also had a bit of a trouble with the Germans and got British. They do seem to say it. They it's do seem a, to say it, don't It's they? a script. <laughs> now, Tom Tunney would spend the rest of the war as a prisoner, first in PG-66 and PG-53 in Italy, before me, being moved to Starlag 4B in Germany, where he was sent out to a work camp in, uh, in a brickyard at Bad Schmiederberg. And the great thing about these oral history interviews is, of course, on the internet, on the War Museum collection, it doesn't stop. It it covers all that in massive details. Fabulous stuff. It really is. Now, the sea company attacks degenerated there. What would you describe it as? Well, utter failure. There was high casualties and many of the men were taken prisoner. Meanwhile, B Company is pushing up Mosque Spur. You'll remember, Gary, of course, pushing towards uh, point two three one on Jebel Galb Sewer. Uh, they, they have a good start, don't they? Well, certainly at first everything went well as they kept right up to the barrage of bursting shells. But then the German fire burst upon them, siding through their ranks. Yeah, what they'd run into is a chain of mutually supporting machine gun posts. Uh, that's what's doing the bloody damage. But they've also uh, got, got troops close by. And what were they getting ready to do, Gary? This will be a surprise to you. Uh, well, they were German troops, so they were getting ready to counterattack. And this is what Private Sidney Shutt of B Company that shit shut was shot? No, that's a different war, isn't it? Although his name's Sid Shut. Now, all of a sudden, it was hell let loose. I've never known out like it. The bullets were flying, the shells were dropping, and some were dropping short, dropping on our own lads as we were advancing. The Sant Major was killed. We weren't getting very far. You couldn't see any of them. You didn't know where they were coming from. They, they were set in there. On we went, and it was getting worse. As soon as you got up, you were an open target for a rifle. You were above the bushes. The shells were still dropping. I could hear this young lad shouting for his mother. Mother, mother. It was terrible. He'd been hit. I walked over the top of him in our next advance. He was out. He was only a young lad. My sergeant, he came over and dropped beside me and he says, you can't see a bloody thing. If you get up, you're down. They were chipping the leaves off the top of the bushes. And that's, uh, remember this from Gallipoli, you can't see anything if you're not, you're not undercover, but you're out of sight, so they can't aim at you. Uh, but if you get up to have a look where you are, you're dead. Now, during the advance, Oswald MacDonald ran into a belt of thick cactus scrub, which made matters even worse as they struggled forward. So come on, tell us, Private, Private, that's a very appropriate rank for you, Private Oswald MacDonald B Company, what did he say? We were going up the hill. You had to spread out as much as you could. And when you're spread out, you can only see what's in front of you. You're only looking after yourself or the next guy who's with you. We were more or less sitting ducks. We came to a wall of cactus. I took my bayonet off my rifle. I was hacking my way through this cactus. 
Captain Babington Jones gave me a dressing down. Put that back on. We're just going to batter our way through. I think he wanted to get it over with. He was very impatient. Let's get there. Let's get it over with. Which we did. We forced our way through. I managed to get a big cactus spike right inside my knee. It must have been four or five inches inside my knee. It was very, very painful, but nothing compared to hot lead. We went on. Babington Jones got shot. He went down. He was lying there. Lieutenant Dorian says, I'm afraid we'll have to give ourselves up. We've no chance. I could see a German coming towards me. I saw another German coming round. We stood up together, put our hands up and shouted, Kamerad, Kamerad. The German says, Tommy, for you, the war is over. Good old Germans. Um, and one of the things I do in the books, all these, or is uh, I like to look these people up and find out where they're buried, you know, whether they actually did die. And Babington Jones, yeah, he did die. Um, uh, yeah, the he'd, other been, thing, he'd the, been hit in the thigh and, and then he died a few days later, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, the uh, the thing is, uh, uh, that reminds you again of Gallipoli. The, the, the th- a bit of an exaggeration, four to five inches spike in his knee. I know exactly what he means, though, when you get one of them. Remember the long, thin ones, about two inches long that go in and hurty. Yes. Now, Oswald McDonald, he had a miserable period as a POW at PG-66 and PG-53 camp in Italy before he escaped after the Italian surrender in September yeah, 1943. Yeah, a lot of them get out then. Some, the managed, yeah, he managed to get back to England in December 1943. But then he retrained and served as a driver with the Royal Army Service Corps in Italy and Austria. Good for him. Good man. Good man. Uh, now, the situation is gradually deteriorating, I think, is uh, one expression, worsening? Yes, and at 10 o'clock, the Germans launched an attack on the defensive positions which had been established by the 2nd 5th Sherwood Foresters some five miles to the east of Sedgenau. Yeah, they, they, they were falling back from uh, from the ridge in front of uh, Greenhill and Baldy. Um, and uh, the Germans, by nightfall, they'd broken through and Sedgenau's now under attack from east and north. Um, oh dear! So the Six Linkshire, they're defending Sedgenane, the town itself. Uh, they've got a they've got a company forward at the mosque at Saint Mansour. Uh, that's next to D Company, the Sixteenth DLI. Uh, the very few survivors of the A, B, and C companies of the Sixteenth DLI. They're the ones who actually went in the in the attack. They'd filtered back the MT lines, and they're off to a new base at uh, Jebel Aboid. Um, the headquarter company. What's there remains forward. Now, at this point, there's an exciting little, it's a, it's a minor part of the story, but it was such a great interview that was done that reflects it. And what, what am I going to tell us about now? Well, you tell me what I'm going to tell you about. I'll tell you what you're going to tell Thanks, me. Thanks, mate. At 1515 on the 3rd of March, Colonel Ware sent a small party to defend the small Arab village north of Sedjanain. It would need more than a small party for a small village. Well, he was going to be used as an outpost to help break up any German attacks from the north. Now, amongst those sent was James Drake, who'd already excelled himself in the recent fighting. Now, he'd play a key part in the defence of the village. Drake got all his men filling the rifle clips and bring gun drum magazines fast as they could, ready for the German attack which he sensed was brewing. Yeah, it's all very interesting, and in the book it's a lot more detail, because actually some officers, he's, so, he's an experienced and good NCO, and there's officers there, and they are put under his command. That gives you a sign of what the colonel thought of Drake. And this is what Lance Sergeant James Drake, he was a carrier platoon, uh, headquarters company, what he said. 
We started being shelled. Everybody was down in our slit trenches. They, they then started with the mortars, mortar bombs flying all about all over the place. There was a lull then. I knew what was happening. They were going to come forward. I put one Bren gun on our left flank, one on the right flank, so they could cover all in front of them with crossfire. I gave strict instructions that nobody must fire a shot until I said so. I had a couple bit around the back of a small haystack on our right with rifles, just in case they tried to filter around that side. We waited, and we waited, and we waited. Sure enough, they came. They had to come over the ground, over ground, and I knew they were in for a hammering. We were all loaded up ready. They stood up and walked towards us, as if they thought we must all be dead. I waited until they got within a hundred yards before I gave a fire order. Right, lads, fire! Both the Brens started. We simply mowed them down. They all fell flat. We got very little fire back from them. I said, if you see any movement at all in anyone, put a bullet in them. Sergeant Dunn counted to 28 that he'd seen off by his own rifle. I shouted to him, stop counting, Dunny. Just keep knocking them down. Wow. It's quite a, an amazing story. It is. It? Now, they seem to be holding, but then one of the men in the haystack spotted some Germans creeping round to outflank them on that side. Drake sprang into determined action. He's a, he's a good soldier, this guy. There, there was a little man which obscured the view, so I shouted to Sergeant Aitchison to take the Brent to creep forward to this mound. He was in his trench and a few bullets were flying by. He said he couldn't. There's too much fire coming round. Without any hesitation, I grabbed the Bren myself and ran it and ran it up. I got the gun just over the mound. Sure enough, there was plenty of, to fire at. I ripped one or two magazines off. Then I shouted for Lance Corporal Gibson to bring some ammunition. I wanted more ammunition. He brought some more magazines. I put them behind the gun, then I went back. I, so I put him behind the gun, then I went back, because of course he's in control. We carried on until we'd used more or less all the ammunition. The two Bren guns, both the, both the barrels were bent. They were no good at all. There's two barrels for each gun, and for every ten magazines you change them over so that one can cool off. But we'd been firing them that much that when I looked down the bar barrels, they were kaput. Um, again, this is a... Uh, I like the way with oral history you get explanations like that, you know, just in case he's telling someone who might not know about that. You probably know that because you, you had a Bren... Well, it was an LMG. When LMG, I was in, but it's, it's the same, same gun. Yeah, just a different... Um, it was the same gun, yeah, just, just, just a different barrel. But you had to change it after a certain amount. Now, as night began to fall, the situation becomes untenable and uh, Lance Sergeant James Drake goes on. We kept that up until daylight was fading. With it getting dark, he started with tracer bullets and they set fire to the thatch roofs. So the building started blazing then. It did us a good turn because we could see what we were doing. <laughs> Can I just interrupt you there? No. I, listeners will remember from our Rourke's Drift podcast, exactly the same was said about uh, the roof of the hospital being set fire and how it enabled them to see. That That is... True. I'm glad you interrupted me because that is true. I hadn't thought that. Yeah, exactly the same thing. Sorry for interrupting. No, you are forgiven for that. 
Anyway, he goes on. Uh, this is Lance, uh, James Drake says. We put what grenades we had on the ground in front of us. I said, they'll be sending patrols up. I went to the cactus trees and sure enough, a patrol was coming up. I let them get close and let off my two grenades. Once all the grenades had been used up, that was it as far as we were concerned. We'd no more firepower. I said, right. I sent them off in fours. I said, go in different directions and probably, hopefully, some will get back and be able to report what's happened. Two had got wounded, one in the foot feet, one in the arm. So I put men on each side of them to help them back. And again, it's, it's good stuff. I wouldn't like that orders. Hopefully, probably, hopefully. <laughs> now, by this time, Drake and all his men were exhausted, but they crawled back, dragging the wounded with them. Yeah, they were really lucky because nearly all of them got back, according to Drake. And and Drake, uh, he, this, this, this heroism... And, and also, it's not just heroism, it's, it's the it's control. military leadership as well. It's the military leadership. He's awarded the military medal, uh, and he, he later on gets that uh, from the king himself uh, at Buckingham Palace. Uh, what, what happens next? Well, at Sedgenane, a further counterattack was organised for First Light the next day. Not by the Durham, surely, Gary. Well, no, this would be carried out by the Six Lincolnshire, supported by some eight Churchill tanks of the North Irish horse. But Drake... Guess what he does? He decides to go with them. Well, he's feeling a bit better, isn't he? And he's amazing. Anyway, he says this. They'd been able to bring tanks up. They were due to go in action next morning. We were at a point on the west side of Sedgenane. There was a tunnel there. We were assembled round the tunnel. I remember Sergeant Henderson of the mortar platoon. I said, what are you doing? He said, firing in the general direction north of Sedgenane. <laughs> he was bandaged on one arm, but he was still there, still loading the guns. I said... I'm going to go up behind the tanks because I know where there is a German big gun in place just north of the town. He's in the bushes there so I can guide the tank commander to know exactly where he is. Oh, that's, you know, he's again, military leadership, taking responsibility. And what do the army call it? Making the difference. Now, Drake, he accompanied the tanks towards the Arab village and he goes on to say this. I informed the tank commander to just go to the corner. There was a slight bend in the road. I said, whatever you do, Stop this side of the corner, then lower your tunnel, turret because he's right bang in front of you on the right-hand side of the road in the bushes. He got back into the tank and the tank moved forward. I went up with the first tank, a couple of fellows with me. I was walking on the right-hand side, the driver's side. He stopped, but a little too far around the corner. The only thing I saw was the front lift up and the driver's head popped up. As it popped up, a shell hit it. He took his head clean off, splattered his brains all the way round the side of the tank. I could see them twitching on the side of the tank. What a sight. Terrible. Somebody lifted him out of the tank and threw him on the side of the road and reversed the tank back. They knew exactly then what to do. They came forward again and I heard one blast. And that's the tank gun getting the, uh, the German gun. But uh, what a... The brain still twitches. That may have been an optical. I don't know. I don't know. But wow. It's possible. Now, Drake, he then decides to return to the railway tunnel area. Yeah, that's pretty well the end of the story. Because this isn't the 16th DLI. This is just a few elements of the headquarters company are back in the battle. Now, if the counterattacks were failing, it was also true that the Germans were not making much progress around Sedgenane. Aha! But then 
Something else happens. What's that? Well, there's a seismic tactical shift. To the north, the free French positions in the town of Majez were threatened with encirclement when Axis forces took control of dominating high ground. So the French have got no option. They have to withdraw. This is not insulting the French. This is, this is what they have to do. Uh, what, what, how does that leave 139 Brigade? Well, they're rather in a, a precarious salient, aren't they? And on the 4th of March, a general retreat was ordered from Sejanane towards Jebel Aboid. And here, the line, they're going to hold the line. Um, what state would you describe the 16th DLI in? Well, I think it's fair to say by that time, they'd almost ceased to exist. Yeah. It had been a cruel and uh, actually horrendous introduction to war. That's true. Uh, and we'll be, we'll be looking at the rebuilding of the battalion and what happens to them in the rest of that North African campaign. What an episode this has been, Gary. I mean, I think uh, when, you, when you looked at the notes, I think you said something about it. Yeah, I said I've read the notes. Oh, you did, yeah. <laughs> now, if, uh, if you're enjoying this new series, then why not buy the book? Sorry, I'm just clutching my head. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have eyes, I can see you. Uh, the book is called Foot Sloggers by one Peter Hart. That's me. Uh, and uh, it's published by Profile and is available in all good and some not so good bookstores and online outlets. Right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll see you again soon. So it's goodbye from him. Bye. And goodbye from me. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?